You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. Awesome. Okay. All right, let me just start this up. Um, so actually, this preach was meant to be on the July 4th weekend, uh, but it turned out even Ryan thought having a Brit preaching that weekend was a bit too much. So <laughs> here I am, safe six months later. <laughs> okay, let me just open with prayer. Um, Lord, I pray that you would bless these words and that you'd open our hearts and that you would speak to us today and that you would be glorified through all of this in our hearts and through our words. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you today about a very important concept that we often don't believe, and that is God cares very, very deeply about our problems. So life is tough, and we all experience suffering. This suffering can be highly disorientating. And this disorientation can lead to disillusionment with God and with God's plan and with how seriously God takes our struggles and difficulties. This can compound by what we perceive as a deafening silence when we cry out to God for help. Now, one individual in the Bible who experienced his fair share of troubles and suffering was King David. David was certainly not perfect, as we know, um, and despite his royal position, he certainly did not have an easy life. In the Bible, we have a wealth of information of not only the history of his life and reign, but also we have documentation of his personal relationship with God through a series of poems which he wrote called the Psalms. In fact, we actually know more about David's life, both internal and external, than any other person in the Bible, even Jesus. So I'm going to talk to you today about Psalm 18. Um, psalm 18 is a psalm where we see David's raw passion and his agony when crying out to God. Um, and let's see, to see how David talks to God about his problems and his suffering. Now, this is actually one of my favorite psalms. Um, it's a go-to go for me when I'm feeling down and overwhelmed with life. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you guys. Um, and hopefully you can see how it's comforting to me and hopefully it can be comforting to you. So let's, uh, let's read the text here. This is Psalm 18, verses 1 to 6. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord, who is worthy of praise and I was saved from my enemies. The ropes of death were wrapped around me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangled me. Snares of death confronted me. I called to the Lord in my distress. I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Now, let's pause here. This psalm is 50 verses long. Over the next three hours, we will unpack this together, verse by verse, <laughs> and there'll be a quiz at the end. Of course I joke, Ryan would never let me back. 
<laughs> but I do want to focus on the first six verses, because I think here we can find important clues about how we should respond to God out of suffering. And it teaches us one very important truth, that God cares about our problems. Let's start with verse 1. I love you, Lord, my strength. Now, I want to draw your attention to this opening statement. David's first part of this prayer poem is the state that he loves God. It seems strange. We read in the introduction to the psalm in the Bible that David writes this in response to God delivering him from his enemies and from the hand of Saul. One would think that David's initial response to God would be thanks. Thanks God for listening. Thanks for God's delivery. Thanks for God's grace. Instead, David starts with a statement of love. I love you, Lord, my strength. Now, this simple phrase is actually David echoing the very heart of God himself. We read in, um, <clears throat> read in the New Testament that God is love in 1 John. And indeed, the greatest commandment according to God himself is to love the Lord your God. David begins this prayer, this prayer poem, with the very thing that our God-given nature is image-bearers of him, love. God is love. And we are called to reflect that love back to God. This is a good and often overlooked way of beginning our prayers. Now let's move on to verse 2. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In this verse, David is firing off a whole list of traits which he associates with God, in addition to God being his strength, as we saw in verse 1. He says, God is my rock, God is my fortress, God is my deliverer, God is my shield, he's my salvation, and he's my stronghold. It seems to be David reminding himself about who God is in his time of struggle. I want to take a moment to put some visualization in your minds about what David might have been thinking about here. Now, David was an Iron Age king, which means he lived in the pre-classical world, before Greeks, before Romans, before Assyrians. When David thought of a fortress or a stronghold, he was not like, I'm sure many of us, thinking of like a medieval castle with walls and drawbridges. He was thinking of an Iron Age fort. Um, I've got a picture here of, this is an Iron Age fort from my home country of England. Um, and there's another one in the next picture here. This is actually one from Israel. So this is one David would have definitely been aware of. <clears throat> um, so first, the images, um, sorry, these, these remains are over 3,000 years old. And we can really easily still make out the defensive fortifications. And they were, these Forts would like tower above the above the countryside. We've seen from miles around. They were strong and they were really, really massive. I mean, you can see like modern cities in the background there. These are huge. <clears throat> the next image here is an artist's impression of what such a fort would have looked like in its heyday. They would contain, sometimes contain their own farmland, in addition to houses, stables, blacksmiths, and of course the king's hall. The idea was that when enemy armies arrived, the people from surrounding farms and villages would run into the stronghold and their families and the livestock, and they would be safe. They would be untouched by the ravages of the countryside 
and to be protected by the king and the king's men. Now, this is what David would have been picturing. The days before professional armies, there was nothing that could defeat these things. And even the Romans, who had a professional army, they really struggled uh, when they came across these. These things were siege-proof and were untouchable. This was a safe place for the people. This is what David is saying about God. God is David's safe place. Now, I want to take a moment, obviously living in 21st century America, um, actually, could keep the picture up just for visualization. <laughs> Thanks. Um, it might be hard for us to connect with David's analogy here. After all, we're not frequently having to retreat to ancient forts to escape roving barbarians. However, I think we can all connect with the feelings of not being safe, sometimes physically, also emotionally, financially, circumstantially. When we feel unsafe, we need a safe place to retreat to where we can feel safe and secure. There's also more to this analogy. I mentioned that the hill fort was a place where people could be defended by the king's defenses and the king's men. Well, Saul, King Saul, was David's king. It was Saul's job to defend David. It was Saul's job to be David's stronghold on whom he could rely. Saul was meant to provide David's safe place. On top of this, Saul was a father figure to David, and he even later became David's own father-in-law. Unfortunately, Saul was a really poor safe place. He, like many people in our own lives, failed to live up to his duty. Saul tried to kill David. He hunted him down like an animal. David was betrayed by the person he was meant to be safe. I'm sure many of us can relate to this betrayal. I'm afraid that I can personally relate to this as well. I suffered with an abusive mother who belittled me and mistreated me physically and emotionally. The person who was meant to be my safe space failed me. My response was to build my own fortress like the one on the screen. Defenses inside defenses, keeping the whole world out. I built my own safe space because no human could be trusted. I'm sure I'm not the only one who has this response. Let's compare this to that of my biblical namesake, King David. Instead of building his own fortress, which as a king he could have physically done, David turns towards God. God is his fortress. When people failed him in their duties, God did not. David recognizes this. In many ways, God is the opposite to humans. Where humans fail, God is unchanging. Where humans fall, God stands firm. Where humans lie, and cheat, and steal, and abuse. God loves and upholds. For humans, let us down. God can be trusted. David knows this, and he can say with confidence that God is his fortress, his strength, and his deliverer. There's a difficult lesson which we also need to learn, that God is safe. God can be trusted, and God be our safe space. Let's move on to verses 3 to 6. I called to the Lord, who is worthy of praise, and I was saved from my enemies. The ropes of death were wrapped around me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangled me. Snares of death confronted me. 
I called to the Lord in my distress. I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Notice in these verses how David responds to his, in his suffering. Notice in these verses a sandwich between the same phrase, I called to the Lord. Once again, David is turning to God in his distress. In this piece of beautiful poetry, David places his distress before God. Take a moment to appreciate some of the language used here. It says, the ropes of death were wrapped around me. Torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol, which was the Hebrew hell, entangled me. This is a man in agony, in severe distress, and he brings this distress before God. We already know that David's view of God as his fortress. But what does this fortress do when David speaks about his anguish, his suffering, the injustice performed against him? This leads me neatly into the takeaway from this passage. Three things which we can remember about God when we feel disillusioned because of suffering. Three things which show that God is our safe place. Number one, God listens. I'm liking how they do it. They're keeping up the slides here. <laughs> we read this in verse 6. In response to the agony of David's soul, which he pours out before his God, from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. What hears David? David is not just shouting into the wind. His words are heard by his loving God, his stronghold and his fortress. Same with us. When we are tormented by suffering and disillusioned by a world which is full of hurt and difficulty, we can bring our problems before God in the safe knowledge that God listens and hears us. But God does not just passively listen. He is moved by compassion at our distress and angered at the injustice. This leads me on to the second point. God cares. In verse 7 of the psalm, we read God's immediate response to David's distress. The earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. When God hears David's distress, God, the all-powerful creator of the universe, the all ruler of the cosmos, the omnipotent and ultimate power is moved to anger. You see, we do not pray a distant God. We are praying to a God who walks alongside us through everything. He's with you in your distress. He is with you in your sadness. He is even with you in your sin and darkest moments when you think that no one could ever love or accept you. God is there, and God loves you, and God cares about your problems. And in the case of injustice against his precious children, God is angry. And when the all-powerful creator of the universe, the sole ruler of the cosmos, the omnipotent ultimate power is moved to anger, shoot gets real. The whole earth shakes. <laughs> and the foundations of the mountains tremble because of his anger. Honestly, I don't think David goes far enough here. I'd imagine some universe and galaxy shaking anger. God cares very, very deeply about your problems. 
as he did with the problems of a Middle Eastern Iron Age poet king. And number three, God responds. The remainder, the remainder of this psalm is a highly poetic rendition of a vision which David puts forward for God's response. We don't have time to read the other 43 verses in detail, but I, I recommend that you go home and have a read. It consists of the sky being torn apart, God coming down from his throne, riding on cherubim, surrounded with clouds and lightning and fire. Some powerful imagery of God coming to David's rescue. God listens, God cares, and God responds. Now, as much as I'd like to finish my preach here, uh, with everything wrapped up nicely, David calls on God, who listens and cares and then responds, I'm sure most of us have one big nagging question. Where is my sky-tearing, cherubim-riding, fire-and-lightning rescue from God? It's all well and good saying that God rescues us, but I'm still here in my suffering. I'm still disillusioned. I'm still wondering if God does indeed listen, care, or respond. Is God even my stronghold and fortress? These are very valid questions. Does God respond to us? Does, how does God respond to us? It's important to understand that these words were written by David after God had responded. When David wrote these words, God had delivered him from the hand of Saul. He was king of Israel. All his dreams had come true. God had responded. It was only after many, many years, David hiding in caves, being hunted like an animal. Let's not brush past this. Let's reflect. This was after years of David bringing his struggles before God. It took a while, but God did respond to David. I want to introduce the concepts to you that God always responds, but frustratingly, not always in ways that we desire or envisage. Some of the ways in which God responds, I'm going to go through some here. Number one, God can respond through comfort. This can be through comforting words from others, comforting scripture, even from a hug from a friend or a cuddle with a furry companion. God has given us all these things to comfort us because he knows that we need it. It says in 2 Corinthians, God comforts us in all of our affliction. Secondly, God can respond to our suffering through peace. For me, I get a sense of peace when I'm hiking out in nature. I marvel at the flowers and the bugs, the birds and the beauty of God's creation. I'm a biologist by trade, so this is where I find my weird peace. Uh, but you may find it in a good book, or having a coffee with a friend, or by meditating in God's presence. It says in, uh, in, John, in the Gospel of John, I, Jesus, have told you these things that you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Number three, God can respond to our suffering by granting us strength to deal with our problems. Maybe strength from within, through the Holy Spirit, or through strength provided by others around us. It says in the book of Isaiah, God gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Number four, people. God can respond to us in our suffering by bringing us into contact with people who encourage and help us. Our church family and even non-Christian friends can be of great encouragement and help in our suffering. Fellowship is a gift from God. I've been told here to plug formation groups, so there's, there's the plug. 
<laughs> it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, for if either falls, his companion can lift him up. Number five, formation, the experience, not the church. As Ryan has often preached, our suffering can be an invitation for God to form us into beings who are more like Jesus. I'd like to pause here and lean upon the teachings of C.S. Lewis. In Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he gives a wonderful analogy. Now, for those not familiar with the book, Lewis seeks to teach us vital truths about God by postulating a fictitious scenario where people in hell visit heaven on day trips. Here, are sorry individual, um, here these sorry individuals from hell can meet with the dwellers of heaven, and they're given one last chance to repent. The heaven is a very uncomfortable place. <clears throat> uh, sorry, I've lost my space. Ah, the heaven is a very uncomfortable place for them, as there only used to be the darkness and misery of hell. In Lewis's book, hell is portrayed as this eternal, dingy city where people are always trying to get away from each other, so they just build houses further and further and further or ever for eternity. <clears throat> the book is heartbreaking, as we can see the damned clutching onto their earthly obsessions, refusing to turn to a loving, forgiving God. Those in heaven, they have one aim, and one aim alone, to reach the distant mountains, which shine with a radiance which is beyond anything seen on earth. It's a metaphor for drawing ever closer to God. One story within this book, which stuck in my mind, from one of the visitors in heaven. Now this, this man was from hell, and he appeared to have what was a little dragon sitting on his shoulder. This dragon was continuously whispering into his ear. The man approaches an angel in heaven, and the angel offers to kill the dragon to free the man from his curse. The man is very is, doesn't want to do this, and after some argument, the man is finally persuaded to part with the beast. The angel grabs the dragon, breaks its neck. This is actually very painful for the man. And the, dragon, and the angel breaks its neck and kills it, throws it to the ground. You expect that's the end of this little story. But actually, something else happens. The most amazing thing, the dragon on the ground transforms into a great stallion. The man mounts up on the stallion, and the two gallop towards the mountains in the distance, faster than anyone else. In this analogy, the man had an invitation to submit the dragon to God. When he did so, the thing which had kept him back from his relationship became the very thing which allowed him to draw ever closer to God. I find this a helpful lesson when considering my dragons or thorns as St. Paul describes in the New Testament. These things can either be seen as a great hindrance for our relationship with God or they can be seen as an invitation to love and trust God more and more, to draw ever closer to him and into his presence. Now, finally, deliverance. Sometimes God does tear open the sky and does ride down to our rescue on scary-looking winged beasts, as he did with David. So why does God do this? Why does God listen, care, and respond to us? Why does God care about our problems? Well, David answers this in one verse of the psalm, verse 19. Verse 19 reads, He rescued me because he delighted in me. God delights in us 
Again, God delights in you. Here's one very precious truth which we must all grasp onto. God delights in us. And this is not because of anything we've done. It's purely because of who God is, who we are as his children. We're his precious and loved children. Nothing you can ever do will increase or lessen your worth in God's eyes. And nothing you can ever do will lessen how much he delights in you. Anything which tells you otherwise is a lie from Satan. God delights in you. God cares about your problems. Now let's take a moment of reflection here and ask the Holy Spirit to draw our attention to anything which is placing distress on us. Um, ask God, tell God about your distress. Let's follow in David's example of bringing our distress before God, trusting that he will listen and respond. <clears throat> 